So on the last day of a retreat like this, often our thoughts begin to move into the future and we think about now how are we going to do this at home? What are we going to take from this retreat that can actually serve us in, in our life outside of retreat? And it's clear that we're not going to take the schedule, we're not going to take the silence, we're not going to take the, the singularity of just Dharma for seven days, eight days. We're going to go move into the activity of our domestic, civic, social, professional, personal, and Dharma activities, then it's going to get, you know, more busy, full, so what is it that we can actually take besides memories from this retreat? Someone a few retreats back said, you know, I do not want to live a retreat lifestyle, but I want the benefit of it as a Dharma lifestyle. And I think we, would all, we could all say, we'd like to have this clarity, this commitment, this feeling of, connectedness with our aspiration. Um, but we don't want to do this kind of schedule. Okay? So what is it that we can take? What is it that we can what is it that we can count on? Looking ahead to the inevitable challenges that we'll all face one way or another. You remember, uh, I think it was about six years ago now, time goes by, but I think it was six years ago that in northern Japan there was a, an earthquake and the tidal wave or the surge that came ashore, you know, the graphic videos, I, maybe you've all seen them, of the shore, the water just kind of coming over the levee and just washing through the town just taking everything, lifting everything, taking it with it, and then taking it out to sea. And there was a few more surges, and at the end of that, the security, the accumulated wealth, the place that they all called home was completely destroyed. And soon after that, the nuclear reactors nearby got flooded and spewed their poison over the land, and you can't live there for a couple hundred years. Those people were living their life just like we do, just like we're going to go back to our life tomorrow, and we're going to pick up our friends and family and behaviors and activities and distractions and usual, kind of go about life n normally. And yet, that's how they were living. And the unexpected conditions that can happen to anyone at any time happen to them rather dramatically. And so imagine you were the one that was up on top of that building, taking the video, watching everything come in, everything go out. And when you could finally walk downstairs and walk out on the streets and see the devastation, who would you want to meet? Who would you want to kind of connect with to just kind of 
ground yourself and to kind of get connected with the new reality of your life. Well, we don't know exactly who it would be, but we would hope there would be somebody who was compassionate, understanding, patient, grounded, not living in denial of what just happened, maybe generous with their time and efforts and resources, somebody who could speak, speak the truth to you, somebody who had tremendous amount of energy to deal with what's going to have to be done, somebody who can, in some ways, accept that you've lost everything, These are the very qualities we're developing in our practice here. Energy, truthfulness, kindness, generosity, uh, resolve, renunciation, equanimity, patience. Just to, just to sit here with our own mind and body, we develop these qualities. These qualities are what I call contingency plans for the trouble ahead. We don't know what tsunami is going to strike our life. It could be a financial tsunami. It could be a health tsunami. It could be a political tsunami. I mean, another one. It could be, it could be anything. And while we have, we have done what we can in our life to build the resources and acquire the resources and friendships and status and material goods and whatever to kind of have some security and some stability in our life. Just like those people in northern Japan, all that could be taken away from us rather quickly. And what could we each then rely on to navigate the, the transition? Our own qualities of mind. When everything is taken away from you, you have your own mind. And what we're doing here is developing our mind in a very, you know, kind of rigorous training session like these retreats are. Not meant to be a lifestyle, but meant to be a boot camp for these, for these qualities of heart and mind. And so this is what we take from the retreat the slow development of some of these qualities, the understanding of their value in our life, the ability to, well, see the truth, speak the truth, acknowledge the truth, accommodate the truth of the way things are. <clears throat> we all want safety. We all want to be secure. We all want to live with abundance. This is universal. We're not abnormal for wanting these things, and we're not wrong for doing what we can to acquire, secure them. And yet, sobriety would ask us to also acknowledge that's not the source of our happiness. While they provide safety and security and a minimum of you know, uh, stability in our life, the real source of our 
ongoing well-being in the face of inevitable change, difficulties, challenges, is our own mind. And these qualities, uh, while we have been developing them here, kind of as are kind of like a collateral benefit of doing the work that we've been doing to be aware and to recognize our own present moment experience. They really are the foundation upon which our mind is resting all the time. And in fact, they are the foundation for the deepest understanding of what life's all about and how to navigate the tsunamis of life with an enduring sense of well-being. Not having our sense of well-being shaken by the inevitable winds of change. You know, Kuan Yin, it said, said the, uh, the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? When we're not holding on to any sense of ourself, when we're not holding on to things, people, you know, with this tight grip of this is my source of security, when we really can let that go and, and really be empty of holding, the winds of circumstance, change is just going to blow through. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. These things, these, these things happen to everybody. And yet, the stable mind, the mind is stabilized in awareness and these qualities of heart, notices gain and loss, pleasure, pain, fame, disrepute, etc., but is not upended by them. This is the direction our life is going. This is the practices we do at home. These qualities of mind in, the, in this tradition are called the paramis. And these are the forces of purity or the forces of uh, perfection when the mind is not attached, not averse, and not confused. These are the very qualities that come to the foreground in our heart. Happiness, George Dreyfus says, he's a translator for the Tibetan, in the Tibetan tradition, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but a sense of well-being. Someone asked me about happiness earlier today, and I said, you know, it would be better not to try to search for happiness, but to understand that this practice brings about the end of suffering. So if these are the contingency plans for troubles ahead, how do we do? What do we do? How do we understand them? What can we do about them in our life? Well, reflect on your acquaintances or um, historical beings that have impressed you with their quality of their life. And just think for a minute of uh, Mother Teresa, who was not a social worker trying to solve the poverty problems of Calcutta, but she was a human being expressing her humanity in caring for someone who is going to die today.
Compassion. Someone who can care for the person in front of them in their condition today. Or Martin Luther King. Living in this country of racial divide and discrimination and intense suffering due to race. Willing to speak truth to power. Knowing that it was life-threatening to do so. Courage, commitment to the truth. Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel laureate of Burma, who was kind of thrust into the politics of their country when it was in upheaval, and because she was popular, endured 20 years of house arrest while the military uh, took advantage of the country. All the while, practicing this practice. Her teacher was Saito Pandita. Now she's the leader of Burma. And you can think of any number of, well, I mean, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, exiled leader of a country under constant threat for his life from others. Such a simple human being, he just, He's such a, he can be so kind of disarmingly ordinary when you're around him. And yet he's an exiled political leader. Let alone a lama, reincarnate, whatever that all is. But simple, sim- simplicity, just kind of being able to kind of get right down to here we are, right here. In fact, we've all sat with him right here in this room for a few days in a row. Okay, so these, when you, and, and I'm not just, I'm just picking figures that we all know, but you have people in your life that you admire for some quality, their love, their truthfulness, their generosity, their humility, their simplicity, their willingness to help, whatever. We all have this, we all have these potentials within us. There isn't any one of us that doesn't have the same potential for compassion as Mother Teresa. There isn't any one of us that doesn't have the same potential for the commitment to truth as Martin Luther King. We all have this potential. These are the qualities of good human beings in every society throughout history. Go anywhere, and people who are truthful, people who are simple, people who are helpful, generous, kind, they're respected, they're acknowledged, they're, they're le- silent leaders, if you will, just by the quality of their life, quality of their heart, mind, that they live their life with. And we may never hear of, uh, we don't hear of most of them. They're just the salt of the earth ordinary folks. These are the qualities, the ten, ten qualities in this, in this tradition, the Theravada tradition, that are called the paramis. Let me just mention them so you have them. Generosity is the first. 
morality or sila, living in uh, without harming others by your speech or action. Renunciation, letting go, or living simply. Wisdom, understanding. And energy, two of the faculties that I spoke about the other night. Patience, the Buddha said, is the supreme virtue. Nothing is accomplished without patience, Sayadaw Pandita says. Truthfulness, not easy to manifest. And resolve, this is one of those qualities, resolve. Wow, nobody ever talks about resolve. Loving kindness, equanimity, generosity, and sila. Okay, but resolve? Wow. What, is it, what does it mean to have this, the capacity to be resolute in your life, particularly around your practice? And then loving kindness and equanimity, the final two. You know, when we think of the Buddha and the journey of the being who was once the ascetic Sumedha, vowed to become a Buddha, had that vow acknowledged by Dipankara Buddha, another Buddha before our Buddha, and then spent hundreds of lifetimes taking various form, taking life in various forms, taking birth as animals and heaven beings and hell beings and human beings in order to perfect these ten qualities of heart. That's, that's what the Bodhisattva's path is. Perfecting these qualities of heart in order to be worthy, if you will, of awakening to the truth, of being able to handle the truth. That's what, the Buddha, that's what a Bodhisattva does in order to become a Buddha. What that means is that this being cultivated these qualities in his heart and mind to the point where they became the default setting of his mind, meaning they were the course of first reaction, the first course of response to any situation, no matter how challenging. The thought was, be kind, be generous, be loving, be balanced, be resolute, be truthful, be energetic rather than whinging and whining and complaining and you know having something else to do and making a complex thing out of a simple thing and as we're so skillful at <laughs> so while we have these qualities of heart inherent as a potential it's clear i'm not spilling any secrets that we have not yet fully perfected them. There's room for improvement. How do we do that? Well, we hear about it. We can practice. We can get some guidance. We can be trial and error and see how to practice these things. And if we're instructed and if we practice and if we kind of check the results of our practice, the impact of our intentions, then we can make some adjustments and we can gradually cultivate these qualities in our heart and in our mind. But we can be sure that we are going to have to confront our conditioning. Our social, our personal, our cultural conditioning, while it may give lip service to truthfulness, may not really want you to be that truthful. 
And while it may, we may give lip service to generosity, you don't have to look far in this country to see that it's not practiced extensively. I mean, it, there's, I'm not saying there's not a lot of generosity. There is. But there's a lot that could be done with generosity. So when we, when we look in our own heart and we see the possibilities of further development, we know we're going to have to confront our sense of ourself, our ideas of... We may have to go against the cultural norm. And in fact, the Buddha said, to, to walk this path of awakening, you will have to go against the stream of our conventional conditioning. Meaning we're going to have to confront ourselves. We're going to have to look deeply into the beliefs, the assumptions, the conditioning that we received growing up and still do that kind of steers us off track. And the commitment to the truth that we have or the practice of generosity that we currently have and our loving kindness when we feel it may not be enough to awaken. It may be enough to get you by comfortably in this culture, in this society, in your society of friends, but it may not be enough to prepare your heart for awakening. And so I mention this only because sometimes we have to take on more than we're comfortable with and certainly more than our current relationships would find comfortable. Not out of harming, not out of anything other than our own aspiration to stop suffering. Wow. Now, when we think of these qualities, generosity, kindness, living with a non, non-harming attitude of mind, they're not particularly Buddhist. <laughs> There's nothing Buddhist about them. These are ordinary, normal, from everyone, every culture. And they're, they're, they're rather mundane. I mean, they're kind of, you know, has anybody not heard of generosity and loving kindness and truthfulness and being patient? Do we ever not have the opportunity to practice them every day? They're so ordinary, well, we overlook them. We overlook the significance or the potential of them in our life. They're ordinary, but they are valued everywhere. Even other spiritual traditions at least pay lip service and sometimes try to develop these qualities also. So while we may recognize the potential within our own heart, of developing these qualities, we may not have made them or seen them or chosen them or recognized them as our personal value in life. It's all fine to be generous, but not me. It may not be my personal value, but it's nice to see in other people. And so while it may be an obvious choice of good behavior, we have to reflect on what keeps us from being more generous, more balanced, more energetic, more truthful, more patient. Because when we notice our habitual reactivity, and is there, let me just say, is there ever a day go by when you, aren't, when you don't have an opportunity to practice more patience? It's like every day, right? It's like 
There isn't a day go by when we don't have, when it wouldn't be nice to remember. Okay. Settle down. Count to ten before you open your mouth. Put that Dharma duct tape on and just kind of... Right? But we forget. That's why all of these qualities of heart and mind are mindfulness practice. Mindfulness is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. Right? When you remember to recognize, right now I'm feeling really impatient. When you are impatient, there's your cue. There's your cue to, oh, practice patience. Or when you walk by panhandlers on the street or homeless people on the street or at the stop sign or wherever it is that you see them in your life, remember there's an opportunity to be generous today. We're not trying to solve all the problems of the world. We're just trying to take care of our own heart. We're trying to develop our own heart, right? So when we see that, when we, when we make a personal decision and value these, to value these qualities within ourselves, it becomes a practice to notice every day when you have an opportunity to speak the truth, practice loving kindness, be a little less reactive. And we can see, I mean, as we, as we reflect on and anticipate going out into the world tomorrow, I mean, we're all going to get in a car and go somewhere. And that can be pretty nerve-wracking, frustrating, aggravating in itself. Okay. It's important and helpful to remember at all times in this practice, that when we are mindful and we recognize the present moment's experience, we should also understand this is the way things have come to be for me, for now. It's condition. It's not our choice. We don't control it. And it's always temporary. <coughs> and just to remind ourselves of that gives us some room to play some room to grow, some room to try something else rather than our habitual reactivity. And if we do choose any one or all ten of these qualities as a personal practice, a personal value, then we are going to get daily confirmation or reflection on whether we're walking our talk. We all want to be kinder, more truthful, more generous, more energetic, more helpful, more wise. It doesn't happen without effort. If we try to kind of deny the significance or the value of these, we'll be confronted with overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So the practice is, you know, all part of the Noble Eightfold Path. All of these qualities are practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. You know, when the Buddha awoke to realize the, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the path to develop for the end of suffering. The path to develop to realize the end of suffering includes all of these qualities of mind, heart, 
every one of them is an eightfold path factor being acted on. Now, we know the law of karma. You know, the law of karma says you do something bad, you know, unwholesome, unskillful. The result will be unpleasant now and in the future. If you do something that's skillful, out of wisdom and awareness and compassion, the result will be pleasant now and in the future. The Buddha said there's dark karma and there's light karma. Karma that leads to the dark, karma that leads to the light. And there's the karma that leads to the end of karma. And that is the practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. Developing these qualities of mind is not karma creating, it's karma ending. This is the path we're on, leading to the development of all these qualities and planting seeds for release from suffering. We can be sure that we're practicing well, that we're cultivating, that we're developing these qualities in our heart when we're able to spontaneously respond to challenging situation with any one of them or all of them, some of them, and to be happy about it and to feel at ease, to feel, you know, uh, this, is, this is normal, this is natural, this is the way I am, this is the, what I want to do, this is how it is for me when we're both immediately happy and happy upon reflection, I did the right thing. Or I did the thing that was most generous or kind or loving or wise. And when we see that there's some hesitation or there's some regret or there's some, you know, doubt or did I do it right or whatever, then there's still room for improvement. So it's only through practice of all of these that we're going to come to our own understanding of how to manifest these qualities in our life and have it be a source of happiness, not a source of blame or regret or command or demand or what's expected of you, but just the default setting of your own mind and heart. Refining our parami practices leads to them becoming more of a default setting or more strength in our mind. And understanding is the benefit of the practice. Letting go is the tool of all of these practices. And a sense of well-being is the result. That's the introduction. Now I could take a little survey and say, which one would you like me to talk about? But I picked one, because I can't talk about all of them. But I want to speak about generosity, because generosity holds a preeminent position in the Buddhist teaching. It's not a Buddhist practice, although the Buddha did teach the value of practicing generosity. And he identified generosity as one of the three foundations for establishing your life in the Dharma. 
So now we've we've had some exposure to the Dharma. We see what we're doing with our Dharma, our Dharma practices. We see the direction we're going. You may have a clear recognition of your aspiration to further commit to the Dharma or would like to. Okay. How to establish your life in the Dharma? Three trainings, the Buddha said. The practice of generosity is one. The practice of sila or living in harmony, non-harming is the other. And the development of the mind is the third. Now the development of the mind includes both tranquility, learning how to calm down, and insight, learning how to understand. Without these three pillars to support our life, our Dharma will be weak. If you remove any one of them, a two-legged stool is not steady. A three-legged stool is. And so when we establish our life on these three foundations, these three pillars, these three practices, we can be sure that our commitment to the Dharma and our development of the Dharma in our life as a Dharma lifestyle will proceed in a balanced way. Because to practice generosity is to be kind to others. Practicing sila. If you practice sila, practicing sila, non-harming, living according to the precepts, is a gift that you offer everyone you live with because they can trust you. They fear no harm from you. You're more of a benefactor than a bother. That's a gift. When we develop our mind through calming down, one calm person in a hysterical crowd has an effect. Those who understand deeply the source of suffering, not just recognize the suffering, but recognize the source of the suffering, can apply effective remedial effort to relieve the suffering. Wisdom is invaluable and it supports and is expressed in the kindness of living in harmony with others and the practice of generosity and supporting others as best you can. So these three pillars are very supportive of each other. You know, to practice generosity takes wisdom and it's being kind. To practice seal is being kind and it's a generous gift to others and it takes wisdom to practice sila skillfully. So you can see that there's a, a mutual and reciprocal relationship among these three pillars for establishing our life in the Dharma. <clears throat> the other interesting thing about it is that these practices are what provide the support for awakening. In Burma, the understanding is, you know, householders, you practice the paramis. In your daily life, just practice the paramis as much as you can. You know, live a Dharma lifestyle through the paramis. Practice generosity, sila, and all of them. And, and, do a month or two month retreat every year. Check your, check your progress with, uh, so to speak. Check, check how much wisdom has developed through cultivating these paramis for 10 months. But do it every year. A lifetime of that kind of practice will surely result in noticeable effects. Okay. Generosity. Mahasi Sayadaw, one of the grandfathers of this tradition uh, from Burma, 
says it is generosity that we can rely on for our health, I mean for our wealth, our happiness and humanity. So I want to talk about generosity as what we can rely on for our happiness, our sense of abundance and our humanity. Several years before I ever went to Burma to ordain, I was living in Western Massachusetts, read an article in the newspaper about a potter living nearby who had constructed a, a Japanese tea ceremony, uh, tea house, on his uh, land, his farm, where he had his studio and showroom. And he had somebody from Japan come to offer the tea ceremony during the summer. So I thought, well, that's good. I like tea. haven't been to Tea, a Japanese tea ceremony, so I decided to go. I went over to his farm and walked around the grounds. He'd taken an old New England farm and he'd made it into this beautiful gardens and it rene rene restored the uh, old farm buildings and barns and sheds into a pottery studio and a workshop and showroom. And I just wandered around for a couple of hours. It was just fantastic. It was just, it was just a mind, a mi it was like a meditation. It just affected your mind so powerfully both the beauty and the care with which he took care of the whole place. And I did the tea ceremony, which was kind of frothy green tea, but anyway, it was, it was good. So, <laughs> so I wanted to say thank you to the potter, but he was traveling. He wasn't there at the time. So I found out when he was back and I wanted to offer him something just to express my gratitude for having the opportunity to share his place. Um, and so at the time I was not wealthy, I was a builder, and, but I, on weekends I made bread because I ate a lot of bread. And at that time I used to bake six loaves of bread a week, eat five and give away one. So I took him a loaf of bread. And he was a single guy, he was, I don't know, 50s or 60s or something at that point. So I took it over to him and offered him a loaf of bread and told him how much I appreciated his, what he had to offer here and I really enjoyed it. And, he thanked me, and then he said, you know, next time I fire my kill, would you like to help me? He has a wood-fired kill. He fires it, fires it once every four seasons, once every season, four times a year. And I said, sure. So on the coldest night of winter, full moon, December, he calls me up and says, hey, I'm firing my kill. Would you like to come help me tonight? Okay. So I went over, you know, and it takes, you know, 36 hours or something to fire this kill because it's with wood. So he had been already been running it for 12 hours and it was time for him to get some sleep, go to bed, get some sleep. And he needed somebody to keep the, keep the wood going into the chambers to keep the fire getting hotter throughout the night. So he taught me how to do it in about a half hour and he went off to sleep and I was left with this roaring firebox of a, a kill, throwing these little sticks of wood in through the three windows to get these and recording the temperature every 15 minutes and whew, it was like a sweatshop it was like so I'd step outside and freezing cold full moon beautiful anyway anyway it was one of those trippy trippy nights but anyway I you know about six seven in the morning he comes out and he's refreshed and I'm exhausted and he says you can go home now I'll finish the job so he did he says I'll call you back in a couple of days when the kill cools down we'll empty it so called me up I went back and we spent several hours just emptying the kill, taking out every piece and putting it on the, on the floor outside the kill. And anything that he saw come out of the kill that was like a 10, he put it aside over there. That's where his museum pieces. But everything else got put, you know, 
all the plates here and the cups here and the, the bowls and everything was lined up. At the end of which he said, thank you very much for your help. You can pick anything you like except the 10. I said, wow, cool. I mean, I didn't have the kind of money that would buy pottery, but I picked something that I liked and it was a bowl. It was a good it was it was a bowl that was just the right size for a modest meal. Not more than I could eat, but not less than I would need. So I had this bowl and I used it all the time. I, I ate all my meals out of that bowl. It was really great. Every time I went on retreat, and I was doing retreats at the center in Massachusetts then, I would take that bowl. I I was really attached to that bowl. I put a lot of attachment into that bowl. <laughs> <coughs> Then I went off to Burma, I just packed everything I owned in the back of my truck, parked it in a garage, and off I went. Five years later I come back, and out of extreme gratitude for my Dharma teachers for having gotten me started on this path, I wanted to offer them each a gift. And I looked through everything I owned, and one of the very few things I owned that had any value at all was this bowl. So I presented it to one of my teachers who had been one of my teachers since the first retreat and she had just had a house built and she received it and I was really happy to give it to her and she was happy to receive it and she put it on the mantle over a fireplace and it was there for many months or years I, I don't remember how long but every time I went there there it was so I knew that there was some appreciation for it later I lost track of it but when I was invited to uh, visit a, a, a Dharma benefactor in Cambridge later. I went to her house and she was uh, a Dharma student and practitioner who'd done a lot of practice and we were sitting in the garden having tea or something and then when it got cooler in the evening we went inside she said we can finish our conversation in here. So we went into her uh, little bungalow and it was pretty spare it was pretty sparse. There wasn't much in it. Uh, <clears throat> there was a little two-inch Buddha on the mantle over the fireplace, and there was over in one corner there was a, a, a two-person seat, stuffed seat, and a one-person chair on either side of a coffee table. So she said, we can sit over here. So I went over to sit down. I sat down in the little two-person seat, and she sat down in the chair across from me. I looked on the table, and there's that bowl. I said, oh, that's a pretty nice bowl you got there. And she says, yes, you know, I really, it's a gift of one of my teachers. I'm so happy to have it. It was a really important gift. I said, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I said, would you like to know the history of that bowl? And she says, huh? So I told her this, the story of the bowl, and she was really just amazed that it had made the rounds. And now when I think about that bowl, you know, the potter offered it to me out of gratitude for my help. I enjoyed it. I loved getting it and enjoyed it. And out of my appreciation for it, I offered it to one of my teachers for my out of my gratitude. And she enjoyed it and received it and kept it for a while. And out of her gratitude for one of her benefactors, she offered it to them and they enjoyed it. What have I ever lost by giving that away? The value of the bowl is, you know, nothing compared to the value and the, the tremendous amount of happiness and expression of gratitude that we all have received from it. This is generosity. This is the practice of generosity. You don't lose anything 
but rather you get in return the happiness. Yeah, it's just the sense of it being of value. It's it's in, it's incalculable how much value that bowl has for bringing happiness to the lives of others. Right? We all have all kinds of things we can offer, we can give away, we can share. And we won't lose it. We'll only get happiness in return. If you understand, that's what you're doing. So, if beings knew as I know, the Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the resultant benefit of generosity they would not let any opportunity go by without sharing. What did the Buddha know about sharing, about being generous? If there was an, ever an opportunity to be generous, don't let it go by. So it's easy to see how generosity is a practice of letting go. It's a practice of happiness. It's a practice of mindfulness, being being able to recognize, oh, here's an opportunity to practice gratitude through generosity. So, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we practice generosity? Why wouldn't we just be generous with our time, with our resources, with our material goods, with our knowledge? We all have plenty to offer, to share. There isn't any of us that doesn't have something of value to someone else. And there's plenty of people that need everything we have. So a few years ago, now it's a decade or more, I was going to this one city to visit a group of students that we were doing a, a, a course together. <clears throat> and I would go three or four times a year, four or five times a year, <clears throat> stay in a hotel in town, and then spend the day with them a day or two over the weekend. And when I stayed in town, I would eat at a nearby restaurant. So I'd come out of the hotel, and being a city, eh, there was a lot of homeless people. <laughs> I, you know, it's just like on every block, there were homeless people and panhandlers and, you know, some drug addicts or whatever. There's just, there's just, there was just a lot. And I've always lived in the country. I've always lived in farmland, ranch land, and you don't see a lot of homeless people there. There are homeless people, but you don't see them. But on the streets of the city, it was obvious. And I found myself trying to avoid them. Trying to go down the street where they weren't, looking down the street, see if it was clear, so to speak. <laughs> Can I get down the street? And after a while, after a few visits, I realized, I'm suffering by my reaction to these homeless people and panhandlers because I feel uncomfortable. I'm a, I'm actually, I was actually afraid of them. And I didn't know what was expected of me. And I didn't trust them. And I thought that somehow I was going to be taken advantage of. I, saw, I you know, just had these vague something. It was going to, you know, but clearly there was fear. So I said, and I saw, I saw. My mindfulness revealed to me, thankfully. You know what? I'm suffering. And they're not going to do anything about my suffering. Only I can do something about my suffering. Only we can do anything about our suffering. But you have to see that suffering. First Noble Truth, Truth to Dukkha, suffering, is to be investigated. Because we're living with it everywhere, and we don't see it. Because we're not looking. 
in a way to see the truth until we practice mindfulness. And then I see. It's like, wow, I'm suffering. So I said, <clears throat> i got to do something about this. I'm not comfortable being this ignorant, this naive, this fearful, this it's unbecoming of me, so to speak, really. So I said, I'm going to have to meet them. I'm going to have to greet them. So I made it a practice. Step out of the hotel, walk right up to the next First homeless person, street person, and you know, they're sitting there with the little sign or standing there with a sign and looking pretty ragged and dirty and you know, whatever. You don't you don't know you don't know what. Until you take a good look. Then you spend time with them. And I would always ask them, How's it going? How's it going today? You know, or how did you how'd you do last night? Where'd you stay last night? Did you stay on the street? Did you stay in a shelter? Whatever. Just anything to make a connection. And then I would always ask them what do you need? That got some interesting answers. You know, some, sometimes they need, you know, they want a burger, they want bus money, they want enough money to stay in a shelter the following night, whatever, or they want to do laundry, and some just want to get a fix. Some, somebody wants a, some of them want a beer, they want whatever they want. And, you know, I would hear their need and then offer something, offer some, you know, token, really, a dollar or two, maybe five, and would just see them. And I mean see them. To recognize that they're a human being and they have value and they're okay and they're suffering and I can't fix it, but I can acknowledge them. And what I saw, what I learned for myself is that when we, when we greet others sincerely, to inquire about their life, you're recognizing their humanity. Not only that, you're recognizing your own humanity. There but for the grace of the Buddha go I. I could be on the streets. Any one of us could be on the street anytime. And yet, right now we're not. And I realize that when we, when we greet others from the place of our humanity, to recognize their humanity, what we give as a gift every time is love. We all have a lot. And we all have a lot to give. And there's a lot of people that need it. And there's no opportunity to take advantage of it. Every day. Every day. You may never see them again, but your heart will know it forever. And nobody can take it away from you. And it doesn't cost you anything. A dollar. A dollar for this radiant heart. You can walk around with it all day long feeling great about Not just like, oh boy, wasn't I great. But because you connect with somebody that really responds, really acknowledges your own humanity. It's extraordinary. But it was because mindfulness revealed my suffering. And I had to do something about it. If you continue to practice mindfulness after you leave here, you're going to see your suffering. And then you're going to have to do something about it. And these paramis are all ways of dealing with your suffering. They're all practices of letting go. They're all practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. They're all mindfulness practices. They're all practices of compassion. <clears throat> so we 
cultivate our humanity, we acknowledge our humanity, we acknowledge our abundance and happiness. What was it that Mahasi said? Our wealth, our happiness, and humanity. Okay, we've, we've dealt with our abundance. We, got, we all have plenty to give. Our humanity, we all have plenty to offer. Our happiness. So after I'd been in Burma for about five years, four and a half years, I, was, I decided I'm going to return to the, to the States. But I was still there for a couple months. And these two Burmese women showed up at the door of my cootie, my cottage, one day. And uh, I didn't know them. They spoke good English. They came in, invited them in, and they said, you've got to meet our teacher. And in Burma, that means we want you to meet our Sayadaw, the elder monk that is the teacher of our family. And every family in Burma has their own Sayadaw, so to speak. And I go, oh, I've met a lot of Sayadaws. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time with monks, and I, I really wasn't interested in going to meet another monk. Not that... I didn't know anything about him, but I, I, I was more comfortable just staying in my monastery. But no, they said, no, you really got to meet this. He, he's, he's, really, he's really special. <laughs> and I go, right, I'm sure he is. No, I, I'm not interested. Yeah, but you, you got to go. You, you got to meet him. You know? And they were insistent. And f- finally, out of just impatience, I said, okay, 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 I'll go. So they, we made an appointment. They came on the appointed day. They took me over took me, picked me up in a pickup truck, the taxis at the time. And on the way over, they told me about this monk, that he'd been a, um, uh, a monk, a monk for life, you know, and that he had been one of the first monks to teach the meditation that we were, that I'd been practicing there when the center first opened in 1949. So he taught there at that meditation center for 10 years, teaching all the Burmese people that came to practice this meditation. And at that time, teaching lay people like ourselves, rather than monks and nuns, was pretty, pretty unheard of, actually. It wasn't, it wasn't common at all. But Mahasi Sayadaw opened a meditation center for lay people. And this monk had been the person that he'd asked to teach, to teach them. And over the course of the those 10 years, it just grew in popularity and hundreds, thousands of thousands, tens of thousands of people came because it was, it was just like so novel. They were really were interested in practicing. And it got to be quite a job teaching them all. So eventually he asked to leave if he could be relieved of his duties. And at the third, the third time he asked, Mahasi Saito agreed to let him go. So he went. He left uh, the, ran- the, the, center in, the center of Rangoon and he went to what was the outskirts or something of the outskirts in Rangoon, and he found a small forest, a, a small grove of trees, a small acre, two acres forest, and that was offered to him as a monastery. So he he'd stayed there for the last thirty years when I was going to see him, and he lived very simply. You know, he didn't allow uh, big extravagant buildings, and you know, didn't even allow electricity into the monastery. Didn't allow phone. Didn't have any cement pavement. Just had wooden buildings for he and a few monks to practice in. And a lot of monks and a lot of monasteries in Rangoon are big, elaborate things with big uh, shrines and a lot of buildings. And he was just little wooden bungalows falling into the ground. But he did have a big meditation hall where people in the neighborhood came to practice every night after work. And he would offer teachings to them. 
And he also had a big dormitory, uh, like a two-story dormitory for the elder women of the community who, once they're finished with their family commitments or their husband passed away or whatever, they would often go to stay, live in the monastery and take care of it and keep it clean and, you know, help prepare things as necessary, but mostly to do their own practice. And so there was, you know, a dozen or so elder women living there and, you know, about 10 or a dozen monks living with him. And that was it. They were just, they were just doing their practice. But she told, they told me enough about him for me to understand, wow, this, this guy is pretty, pretty unique. And uh, so we went in to see him and, uh, you know, greeted him and they talked to him for a while. And then he asked me who I was and what I was doing. I told him and, and I basically said, you know, that I'm, I'd been here for about five years and I was going back to the States to see what life has to offer. And I asked for his advice. And he got any, got any advice? You know, what should I do or what, whatever? And he said something that seemed so kind of like, well, simple and noncommittal and like, yeah, well, what's the real thing? You know, I, I thought. And he just said, as long as you do your own practice, everything will be all right. See, okay, can't argue with that, but anything else? Nothing else. <laughs> so it's like, wow, evidently that had a lot of significance to him. So I was pretty impressed with him, so I decided that I'd like to try to get some time to practice with him. Burma was under martial law at the time. You couldn't go anywhere. There was just military people all over the place. And everybody had guns, and nobody was talking to anybody. Groups of three or more could be shot on sight. It was just, it was a terrible time after the dictator stepped down and the military took over. So I just said, well, I want to go see if I can practice with him. So I got a temple boy from the monastery where I lived to take me to town, to the, to the, uh, to the government office, where I could get permission to go stay in another monastery. So when I came to this, when I went to this, this government building, this bureaucratic building, you know, the military guy standing outside, they saw me, I was a monk. Oh, they, they put down their guns. They put down their guns, take off their hat for a monk. I could go in the building. I went to see the person and I said, I'd like to go stay with this monk. Can I get permission to do that? They said, oh yeah, sure. And they signed the papers. I had permission. So then I went and went back to my monastery and made the appointment to go over on that day. I went and stayed with him. When I got there, I said, well, where, where, where should I stay? And he said, well, you can stay in my meditation kuti that's out back of his little building. So we walked through the back of his building, and there was this long room. It's about, you know, from here to that tanka over there, that long, 50 feet, and it was about six feet wide. At one end was a bed, at the other end was a toilet. <laughs> that's where you practice. You just, you walk back and forth, and you sit. You walk back and forth, sit and walk alternate hours a day. And there was a door on the side that went to a toilet. The windows were such, there were windows on both sides, but they were such that if you look out them, you couldn't see out because you could only see down to the ground right there. But it allowed for the breeze to come through. So it was kind of like a wooden cave, long, narrow wooden cave. So I went in there and I was practicing. I thought, wow, he's going to let me have his own place to practice. That's pretty good. I said, what about alms round? I, you know, I need to get food and alms round. He said, I and the other monks will go, we'll share our food with you. You don't have to go. Okay, great. So I'm in the room, I'm walking back and forth, sleeping, walking, eating the food they get, walking back and forth, sleeping. It's like nothing else to do. 
after a few days, I was just about going crazy, <laughs> you know, and it was like, I'd like, I'd like to take a walk outside, <laughs> you know. So I was just like, I, okay, I, I think I'll just take a walk outside, go walk around the monastery a bit and come back. So I go to the door, I fix my robe, and I go to the door, I open the door to step out, and he's standing right there. <laughs> I go, oh. So he looks at me, he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Burmese, but he looked at me like, you know, I, the message I got, my projection was, he was saying, you're doing well, keep going. I mean, stop, don't go out, keep, go- keep practicing. <laughs> so I just closed the door, thank you very much, closed the door. <laughs> <laughs> went back inside, kept walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking for another four or five days. I don't know why. And then I really got cabin fever. And I thought, God, I got to get out of here, you know, just to get a little fresh air or something. I don't know what. So I said, <clears throat> okay, go to the door, open the door to step out. He's standing right there. Now he can't see and I can't see out, so he knows something. Anyway. The last day I was there, he said, you can go on alms round with me. So I went on alms round. I got dressed to go on alms round. And uh, all the monks line up. And he was at the head of the line. We start going out the monastery. And he stops right at the edge of the forest and waves all the monks by except me. And he pulls me aside. And all the other Burmese monks are going out there. And he says something like, follow me. So he goes back into the monastery to go out another way. But before I turned around to follow him, I looked at where the other monks were going, and just at the edge of the forest where the monastery ends, there's a roadway, it was lined with hundreds of people waiting to offer alms to them, alms to the monks. So he went out the back way. And we walked through the monastery, and then we walked through these back dusty roads. I mean, it's just ox cart trails. There were no vehicles there. Ox cart trails for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I don't know, through some kind of sprawling kind of like slum suburbia. Very poor. Very, very, very poor. And uh, eventually we came out to an intersection and there was a food stall there and when one little boy saw us, he says, oh, Ponji Labi, Ponji Labi, meaning the monks have come for, um, for alms. So everybody around, everybody in the shop, every, everybody around, when you say Ponji Labi, they all want to serve the monks. So we walked up to the first person and we just stood there and dozen, 15, 20 people came. They would get something at a nearby shop, a bag of this, some rice, some curry, a coffee, flour, something to give us. And we just stood there and received the stuff. Our bowls got full. And so one of the shopkeepers gave some little temple boys the plastic bags. We emptied our bowls into the plastic bags and we went on. We went on a two-hour walk around that sprawling suburb. Now these people knew of him as a meditation teacher. And even though when he arrived there, it was quite remote and on the edge of Rangoon, his monastery was now in the middle of this sprawling suburban slum. Those people had moved there to be with him, to practice with him. They would go do their work each day, and at night they would go to to his meditation hall to practice, and he would give them a talk, and they'd practice till late at night, go home, go to work, come back the next night. And that's what he'd done for 30 years. We got back to the monastery and there was way more food than we could ever eat. So we had our little bit and the monks had their little bit and the women at the center had their bit. 
and all the rest was distributed to the poor people in the village every day. Monks can't keep food overnight. And this is the way he lived. Those people were so grateful to have him in their life. So appreciative that they supported him and his monks. And he, in turn, offered the Dharma. And that's the way they live. Now, when you return home, you have the Dharma. You can be a source of kindness, generosity, understanding, patience to everyone in your life. Not as, not as renowned as that monk and not as, you know, kind of central to their lives, but you can have that effect on everyone in your life. The Buddha said, the gift of the Dharma is the greatest giving. It doesn't mean we who share the Dharma with you are offering you the greatest gift. It means when you practice the Dharma and live your life in the Dharma, you're giving the greatest gift you can to humanity. And just as we might be affected by any one person who's angry or upset or fearful, others are affected by you if you're calm, clear, compassionate, and wise. We're all conditioned by everyone. So we all can be a force for clarity and sanity and sobriety and understanding in our life. We don't have to be on a, any bigger stage than the stage of our own life. And whatever you do, do it with that Dharma. Do it with this awareness. Do it with, this, with these paramis, these qualities of heart that, you know, are the foundation of your own sense of well-being and can support others in their well-being. That monk was Shueyu uh, Min and that's Saito Utejaniya's teacher. The Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma, the Buddha said. And Visaka, who was his chief patroness, said, when I remember my acts of generosity, I'll be glad. When I'm glad, I'll be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. And when my body is tranquil, it'll feel pleasant. And when I feel pleasure like that, my mind will become collected and stable. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties that I spoke about the other night and the factors of awakening through generosity. So let's sit for a moment, let these words settle into our heart. Shantideva. <laughs> All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. 
all the misery the world contains just comes through wanting pleasure for yourself. It is generosity, Mahasi Sayadaw says, that one can rely on for one's wealth, happiness and humanity. listening to the Dhamma. So, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.